Welcome everyone to another edition of Tuesday Talks. I'm Ange Shepard. I'm your host. Uh, I'll be hosting today with my colleague, Ladarian Gillette. Um, as I alluded to um, before we get into our, our script and our regular run of show, um, just want to give an acknowledgement to all of our colleagues, all of our friends, all of our uh, loved ones and community members around the world that have been responding to so many um, important events in the news cycle from Afghanistan to Haiti. Um, now here in the Gulf Coast uh, in the U.S. where I'm calling in from. I know it's been a tremendous and heavy lift and uh, we're continuing to think about everyone uh, and we at CARE are propelling ourselves into action. Um, you can learn more about some of the interventions that we are pushing forward and the partnerships that we are um, uh, advancing at care.org or on our social media channels. And we'll continue to drop more details in Tuesday talks going forward to make sure that we keep you all informed. Um, with that said, we were initially scheduled to be off next Tuesday. Uh, we're going to take a, a pause for Tuesday talks um, with the U.S. holiday celebrated on Monday. But we're going to bring uh, a special Tuesday talk addressing some of the different responses uh, to the humanitarian crises that we're seeing in many parts of the world. So um, thank you all. We're continuing to, to press forward. Um, and we have all of our fellow community members in mind as we try to rally uh, in these moments. So with that said, welcome again to Tuesday Talks. I'll tell you a little bit about our format and about today's discussion. Um, the CARE Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty, by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space, programs, and support systems to connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges by exploring compelling topics. We hope that each week our participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women. And in our talks, we especially look to highlight the expertise of Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. And today we're going to talk about healthcare. And uh, many of us know that healthcare is typically top of mind for the public. It usually ranks among the top three concerns across many, many different communities. And the pandemic has certainly shed light on the imperfections of the global healthcare system and even more light on the need for more equitable access. And as countries begin to reopen, despite ongoing challenges around the pandemic, we must continue to ask ourselves how we will improve healthcare and what can we do to guide better health policy? It's difficult to answer this question with uh, clear certainty, uh, but what we do know for sure is that everyone in our world is impacted by these important decisions. Between international crises, climate change, the pandemic, and so many other challenges, um, know that these things are placing tremendous strain on the global healthcare system, its workforce, the infrastructure, supply chains, and exposing social inequity in the healthcare space. So in today's conversation, we'll discuss the future of healthcare systems, what changes might be on the horizon, and things that we might be optimistic about moving forward. So let me introduce you to our amazing group of panelists today. Uh, first, I'll introduce you to Dora Curry. Dora is the Director for Perv Delivery, CARE USA's Health Equity and Rights Team. Dora leads CARE's global support to the implementation of health programming globally. She focuses on health system strengthening, data use for learning, 
and improvement in health systems and designing health systems for client-centered care. In over 20 years of work, uh, equitable, just access to immunization has been a theme uh, from her first professional job working towards polio eradication to supporting introduction of HPV vaccination for adolescent girls through Gavi to her current technical leadership of CARES Fast and Fair initiative. Dora, welcome to the uh, Tuesday Talks for this week. Thank you for being with us. Hi, glad to be here. Absolutely. Next, I want to introduce you to Dr. Nanefwa Afomanin. Dr. Afomanin is an emergency medicine physician, public health practitioner, and social entrepreneur specializing in disaster management and humanitarian relief. She cares deeply for communities across the globe and continuously displays this care through thoughtful initiatives that improve access, equitable care, and holistic care for individuals and families. Dr. Nana is currently working tirelessly with the My COVID MD initiative to strengthen the safety net and ensure that historically marginalized and under-resourced communities in the US have access to COVID-19 vaccines and wraparound resources. Dr. Nana, thank you for being with us today. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. We're excited to be here. Absolutely. We're excited to learn from you today. Uh, next, I want to introduce you to uh, Dr. Satisuk Joy Baosai. Dr. Baosai earned her medical degree from the University of California, San Francisco, completing the Global Health Pathways Program. She holds an MPH degree with a focus in health management from Yale University. Dr. Baosai's work addresses gaps in access to high quality care. Through previous public health work in Africa and Asia, she developed innovations dedicated to improving access to health services. Dr. Balsai, thank you for being with us. Welcome. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. We may have lost Ryan, so I'm gonna jump in until he connects <laughs> back on. <laughs> But thanks again, Dr. Balsai, for, for hopping on this um, speaker series so last minute. So we'll go ahead and, and jump right in. And, and Dr. Balsai, if it works for you, we'll start, um, start with you. So you are uh, the founder of Pluto Health. Can you chat a little bit with us about how Pluto Health is creating a space um, for healthcare community to address care gaps and how you think technology can shape the future of health equity and access? And just to give you a, a little background, we had a conversation a few weeks ago about the future of technology and how that might change um, some of the gaps that we're seeing in, in infrastructure and systems. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I'm so sorry. I dropped off there. Uh, had a technical issue. There. Sorry. Go ahead, please. No worries. Thanks for joining us again, Ryan. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a really, really uh, great question. And I think I'd like to start off and say I don't think technology is the answer. I think it can help augment some of our capabilities. But I think certainly technology, if done right and implemented well, can help address care. Um, so what we're working on at Pluto is basically we're bridging silo data across multiple EMRs. So EMRs meaning electronic medical record systems in a matter of a few minutes. And um, it is done in a streamlined way that empowers the patient with access to a unified record. 
and then allows us to understand what other services they might need um, in both in terms of their medical care, but also uh, we'll, we have a sense from the data what uh, services they might need to leverage. So for example, we have a partnership with a low cost pharmacy delivery program where they can deliver meds for less than $5 a month, and that includes the cost of the medication, things like that. So we're trying to use data, uh, bring it together and help uh, patients out when they need it. Um, we'll have to say, um, as a side note, I, I have been the Associate Director for the Global Health Innovation Center at Duke uh, University, and there are a ton of really fantastic innovators thinking about how to leverage innovations and open the lines of communications for both urban and rural communities that can uh, benefit both in you know the domestic setting but also in internationally so it's definitely I just wanted to put a plug in for that group it's called innovations in healthcare um, at Duke but they're doing fantastic work and if you ever need to connect with an innovator um, in that network we're certainly happy to help you. Excellent. Um, th thank you for that. So I'll actually take a quick step back. Um, we, we try to set the uh, the space, and of course, my Zoom totally wrecked it as I was kicking us off. Um, but before we get into the meat of the conversation, we always like to ask our speakers to tell us a little bit about the communities that you call home, uh, the communities you identify with, and who you're advocating for through your work. So Dr. Balsai, I'll give you first chance to, to start there. Let's hear from Dora, and then let's hear from Dr. Perfect. Um, yeah, so we're focused on uh, Medicaid, Medicare populations and folks who traditionally do not present to university hospitals. So that's our populations that we like to help out. What about you personally? What communities do you call home? Communities? I, uh, well, I live in the Research Triangle um, and our office is in Durham, North Carolina. Dora, what about you? What could be you call home? What communities are you advocating for through your work? I actually am a longtime Atlanta resident. My family from way back is a long time. We, we come from Atlanta way back. So uh, here in CARE US uh, headquarters, Atlanta is also my hometown. And um, right now in the midst of COVID, um, um, COVID vaccination issues, access issues, vaccine hesitancy is a really interesting time to be working in global health. We work with communities who have um, challenges accessing health services all over the world from Ecuador to Malawi to Papua New Guinea uh, in our Fast and Fair initiative. And many of those issues are very similar and have a lot to do with uh, health inequity um, from here and right here in Decatur, Georgia, all the way to Papua New Guinea. What about you, Dr. Nane? What communities do you call home? What communities do you identify with? What communities are you advocating for? Um, I guess for me, the best way to answer that question is like you started the, the talk with music. Um, I'm of the trifecta, Biggie Smalls, Tupac, Bernie Man community. <laughs> Um, both East Coast, West Coast is both where I come from, where I represent, and um, hailing from West Africa, from Ghana. Um, it's been that's that's been uh, the combination of who I am and where I where I see myself going. So, 
And what about communities that you're advocating on behalf of through your work? Yeah, so I, um, the two big communities our work is focusing on is um, ally health professionals of color and their mental health and wellness, as well as Black and Indigenous populations of color who have been outside the um, healthcare system. Got it. And so I think just in light of kind of what we opened with about um, some of the acute humanitarian crises that we're seeing around the world in, in this moment, um, I wonder, Dr. Nane, based on your background kind of working in that space, talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges that folks may be experiencing in this moment in places like the Gulf Coast, in Haiti, in Afghanistan, or other places that are still on the recovery and resilience journey. And what are things that we might be doing to um, support organizations and individuals uh, in that space? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I remember when I visited Haiti before the first earthquake that um, we did much work um, in Mirbalé and trying to bridge holistic medicine with um, traditional um, medical care. And I think the challenge always is, you know, um, there is a rich fabric of resources, and the resources are really in the human capital, right? But for some reason, we forget that and we, we divest from the human capital and invest in product resources, even technology, to somehow solve the problem. I love how um, Dr. Bill Simon, I don't, botch your, um, don't want to botch your name, but she had mentioned how, you know, technology can augment, right? But is the human connections, the providers on the ground, the people on the ground, that are gonna do the most amazing work. Um, and right now, I think that when we are trying to provide services, one of the lessons learned from the um, uh, initial earthquake in Haiti was that there was a huge descent of the external into the space, right? Um, and many people with greatest intention um, came into that space not understanding um, what was really truly needed on the ground that would be sustainable, you know? I mean, the conversations were left that there were, you know, we were left homes and, we, you know, shattered homes and left tents, right? Um, tent cities all over. And now we are finding ourselves, and my heart goes to Haiti, and my corner of our co-founders are, both our co-founders from Haiti as well as our medical director. And so we... We, we're so concerned about that second wave again. Um, there's so much work that needs to be done on the ground, but the collaborative work is the most critical work. Um, and a lot of times when we are coming from developed countries that have resources, we want to give so much, but sometimes we just have to listen and hear what the need is on the ground. Yeah, thank you for, for giving us that context. And Dora, I saw you nodding in agreement. Um, I wonder, so, so tell us a little bit about your perspective. You were nodding in agreement and also connect the dots for us to how that approach and framework has informed some of the vaccine work that CARE is doing. Yeah, I mean, I think collaboration is the, the, the theme and the key uh, across your interoperability, across platforms, collaboration with um, partners with the, those closest to the, uh, you know, those, the most decisions as close as possible to those directly affected. Um, I do, I absolutely uh, love that theme and, and that's what we're about. Um, you know, how does that um, connect to vaccines? I, I, I guess I would say um, 
First and foremost, I, I really do think that um, frontline health workers uh, are the ones literally on the front lines, both in terms of ha having the huge burden of treatment of COVID and vaccination against COVID um, on their shoulders and being most ex exposed to risk. Um, and I think that um, really taking their perspective into account, uh, putting them in, in um, positions of decision-making and influence uh, women, women health workers, frontline health workers are vastly under, underrepresented in COVID task force and so on. I think that's one key part. Then I also think communication, uh, collaboration with um, the people living the reality of vaccine hesitancy is absolutely key. Telling people you're doing bad, you should get a vaccine is, is worse than counterproductive. Um, listening to what people's concerns are, answering their questions honestly, uh, respecting uh, the perspective of the people making the decision to get vaccines or not is critical. Absolutely, and, and I think that's a great way to uh, Dr. Bosai, what you started with and thinking about the tools that we have at our disposal. So technology is one of those tools that we might use to influence outcomes, um, but what are some other innovations that you feel excited about or things that you see on the horizon that might improve both access and the ability to effectively navigate uh, health systems? Yeah, absolutely. I think that learning from our global innovators as part of our innovation at work at Duke and also some of the work that we're doing at Pluto is you really have to understand not the technology, but who you're trying to serve. So I think that it's important to understand the community's perspective, what they need, their frame of reference for how to understand different information. So like Dora was saying, you know, if someone's not ready or doesn't understand what a vaccine means, let's figure out what the concerns are and ask them. And so I think that it's important not to just come in and think because you have a tool and you have a theory of why things should be the way they are, that that's going to be widely accepted. So what I've seen from our the successful innovators in the network is they really spend the time to build frameworks in the communities that they're working in, ask questions, involve local leaders, you know, there are, especially in times of disasters, you see outside organizations, I, I would say, helicoptering in in masses, trying to help out, and everyone has really great intentions. But I think that the most successful projects that we've seen lift off the ground and get buy-in from the ministries of health and the local governments is you involve them very early on in the process and get feedback and make sure that you're helping to build sustainable infrastructure and not just overwhelm the system. And so I think that technology provides a bridge in allowing you to have open communication and health you know, like in health systems, I think it's great. Like we've developed mobile tools to track, you know, where patients are going and if they've received the vaccines or meds or if a community health worker has gone to their house and things like that. But at the end of the day, it is really uh, about building infrastructure together with either existing frameworks or alongside people who are, are boots on the ground. Um, and so that, that's sort of what I, I, you know, my opinion of what I've seen is successful among um, the innovators who have scaled really, really nicely.
Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And um, at Care, one of the things I feel proud of being a part of Care is that 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 ethos is is absolutely a part of the way that we approach the work and um, the work that we're doing in the U.S., which is like our, one of our newer endeavors, um, is almost exclusively leaning into partnership, especially local partners, grassroots levels, and finding the areas where we can be additive and then getting out of the way um, beyond that. So I think that that's spot on. And I know, Dr. Nane, that's the core of how you all approach your work as well. Some of the, the ethos around community involvement, collaboration, uh, engagement. Tell us why you feel like that is the most effective strategy and some of the uh, things that you've seen, particularly during the pandemic, uh, taking that, that approach uh, with Shared Harvest's programming. I think we have you on mute. <laughs> Yeah, now it's the, officially a Zoom party. <laughs> so one of the, I think, core revelations that happened that really ignited our Shared Harvest initiative beyond to the MicrovitMD initiative was that healthcare in the U.S. is not a human right. You know, we are empathetic to, and compassionate about care, but we don't um, create some systems where everyone has equitable access to health. Um, and we see this over and over again in pandemic crisis, um, Hurricane Sandy, we've seen it, you know, in the Gulf Coast constantly, Katrina, um, and for um, health professionals, especially of color, you know, health professionals are not homogeneous, you know, things impact us, we're humans, and I call that the psychological trauma of being a physician of color and seeing the same group constantly being um, hit hard after pandemic, after pandemic, what to do. Um, and so building an ethos where you're around colleagues and individuals who believe, even though we don't have a mandate to make this a human right, we can do actionable steps to make sure access to care is equitable, um, was the foundation of shared harvest. We believe in a shared promise to make sure health and care is accessible to all. So when COVID hit, wanting to get real resources to real people in real time. In order to get to that, we had to get real collaborations on the ground with the community. And so my COVID-MD started collaborating with now, wow, over 85 different CBOs. And we started doing pop-up community-based testing and vaccinations and wraparound services. We use technology and to enhance our ability to access families and ecosystems that were now falling outside the safety net. The difference is we also got a wake up call, right? Because there were, that's where we found there was a digital divide, right? There's people who don't have access to the internet. And so you had people um, where hospitals needed to, you know, decompress the, the emergency departments and the ICUs by sending people home early with these monitors and healthcare, um, health kits. And they're sending them home to places where they don't have access to internet. And so these, these um, technology enhancements to help with hospital at home was not helping in communities of color. And we needed to know how to then fill that gap. And a lot of our amazing CBOs became broadband hubs and they were the tethering component to the getting access to the individuals. And then at the same time, you know, you have so many healthcare providers across the globe who want to help. And as we know, uh, uh, 
um, for those of us in medicine, going global health, you can be in Rwanda and still have love and energy in, you know, in Atlanta that you want to support. And so we were seeing that. And so we wanted to create a vehicle where wherever you were at, you can still help and inform us better on how to service a community that was off the grid. And um, so that's really what Share Harvest has been able to do. We've, um, we've vaccinated over 10,000. We um, provide social service support over 13,000. And now we're continuing to build this ecosystem and network of community health partners. That's amazing. Wow, thank you. That is truly amazing. Sorry, please, Dr. Bosai. Oh, I was just saying that was amazing. <laughs> Um, I can Truly piggyback, if, if it's okay, can I piggyback on please, comments? Um, so I think it's extremely important when we are thinking about deploying and developing technologies. I mean, we experienced this at our own home universities that at, at the height of COVID, like last year, when we tried to deploy these telemonitoring tools and apps and triage things that there's a huge disparity in who is able to enjoy some of these services, right? Like it's it's very different taking care of a software engineer in the research triangle and someone in rural North Carolina who doesn't have great literacy or maybe of, you know, coming from, you know, speaking a different language as they're in English as their second language. So there has to be a point where we also understand uh, how do we reach diverse populations and implement technologies that don't exacerbate health inequities. Um, and so there's a lot of thinking behind uh, what other factors that need to come into play to make sure that, you know, yes, you can have a project, but what does it mean for everyone else? So. Yeah, that, that is exactly where uh, I'm hoping to steer the conversation. Um, and Dora, I think you can speak to this uh, with the way that CARE tries to show up in, in our work. So we heard from uh, Drs. Nane, Dr. Bosai about how we might be focused on one particular issue. In this case, maybe it's uh, vaccination or access to telemedicine. But what it reveals is a set of other compounding challenges or barriers that might exist, um, whether that's accessing technology or uh, language barriers or just other things that might be compounding. Why is it important in CARES work that we take a gen lens uh, to the issues that we look to grapple with? And how have you seen that lead to better community-wide solutions and improvements? Well, I think um, that is, is so key. And I do think that the gender barriers and its effects and the way unlocking the, the power that women and women in their communities have can, can push us all forward. Um, I, I do really think that it's just, you know, COVID is just one example. And this is so true for um, um, so, so many different areas of, of health and other areas where we work to, to really be a force for change. So great to get to talk to this. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's most striking to me about why this works, why it works to really address the gender barriers um, in that that affect people's access to COVID and uh, front frontline health workers who are mostly women affect their ability to just be effective is uh, one one thing that really strikes me is that uh, when you look at the evidence base that um, that 
task force, global task force and national task, task, for, task forces are using to make decisions and, and set policy. Um, when they say evidence, they almost exclusively take uh, research-based uh, uh, evidence, uh, results coming out of lab-based conditions that are sort of very clinical and almost never consider effectiveness instead of efficacy, what it takes to actually get vaccines in arms, what it takes to actually protect um, health workers from getting transmission, uh, what it takes to actually effectively treat uh, uh, patients, um, that implementation, operational uh, learning and, and knowledge um, that, that actually works in real work, world conditions, with 70% of health workers being women, that's who knows how this works. We need to, we need to build off that learned experience. Yeah, and I, I see that um, you know across all of all of the different perfect areas. Quite frankly, that we are uh, you know focused on. Yeah, Doctor Nene, I see you have your hand raised. Please jump in. Yeah, I wanted to echo what uh, Dora had just mentioned because you know one of the things that we recognized early on in Shift Harvest, one of the other um, programs of um, that we focused on student loan debt relief. Women carry the largest percentage of student loan debt than any other um, graduate group especially women who are in the allied health profession field. And so when we were talking about women as being frontline workers and the psychological impact of doing this work day in, day out, and still getting the return on investment of getting populations vaccinated, getting them in treatment and care, we felt that we need to support the women financially as well. And so one of our goals was a 20 million by 2022 is to get student loan debt relief specifically and credit for um, forgiveness for women frontline allied health professionals and all in general. But with our focus understanding as you, you, if you think every nonprofit organization that is out there is led by a woman just like working tirelessly with her kid or family and everything else, you know, and we, we continue to let that sweat equity go um, unpaid. And so that was, that's the effort that we have in our initiative to make sure um, women are recognized that way. And yeah, tell us a bit more about how the program works. So how do you, is it an advocacy thing? Are you all um, trying to redirect resources? How do, how do the nuts <laughs> We put okay. our money in our mouth and our everything in the same all thing. Right. It's threefold. So um, we actually okay. have a rewards program um, if you're doing active um, volunteer work or working with, um, or in our case, we we created MicroVMD. So if you're signed on to be any part of our community health partner, which is remote or on-site doing vaccinations, you get points for every time you do work. And those points are graduate towards credit directly towards your student loans. But on top of that, our nonprofit partners, our foundation partners, our um, direct donor directed funds will go to match those points. So, and we're doing it in real time. So unlike, you know, the public service loan forgiveness, you wait 10 years and you get $20,000, but you checked out the interest rate on that. You're like, ah, did that really work for me? Right. But this is direct pay month to month against the student loans. And we really made some headway when um, the student loan um, pause was because instead of waiting for the pause to go and then all this to capitalize on poor um, individuals later on, we were actually cutting and slashing down their debt in real time. 
And so um, uh, I think right now I, our numbers are $268,000 in student debt relief for our allied professionals so far. Amazing. So please, go to please do, yeah, no, I get it. Please do um, share information about that particular initiative. When we do our recap, we'll circulate it to folks. And if you have a link that you can drop in the chat, it'll be available for anyone um, who goes back to rewatch. Dr. Bosai, it looks like you, did you want to jump in there? Oh, no, I would, I'm just amazed. I mean, I was just nodding in support. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, maybe let's let's build on that. Um, from your vantage point, when you look at the confluence of healthcare and technology, um, talk about the importance of representation across that full spectrum. Um, that you have folks with lived experiences or experiences that may be similar to the patients, different from legacy participants. All of the complexities of it. Why is that such an important part of making for an effective continuum? In regards to the technology or a specific initiative? I think that confluence of technology and health in the healthcare system. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important as, as you build, let, let me just say, I think my Silicon Valley friends would, would, you know, throw darts at me with say, by saying this, but you can't hack healthcare. It's just too complicated. It's, it involves a lot of buy-in from uh, the stakeholders running the system. It involves a, a lot of buy-in from patients and communities. And so you can't just introduce like a widget that will triage, like say, for example, let's just say COVID since we're in the middle of the pandemic and hope that that's gonna cure or reduce rates, right? Like it involves uh, multiple pieces along the way and sort of what Dora was saying earlier, I think it's just like you've got to you've got to involve folks with boots on the ground and who are thoughtful. But I also think like let's think about what the impact you're trying to show. It's not necessarily effectiveness of one intervention. It's like are we actually doing what we intend to do? And I think that that involves thinking about what a program means from end to end. So I've seen a lot of programs come out where it's just screening, right? And then you're like, okay, well, so what? Now they have a positive result. Okay, what are they gonna do? And then sometimes, you know, we'll see some folks who we saw this with a pharma company who tried to help us out. They wanted to help screen and all this stuff. And then and then the workers were like, okay, now, but where do we send people? You know, and so it's just thinking about what are the processes in place that you need to carry out impact on and it's not just and I think it's also recognizing like you are one solution and you are really good at this who do I need to partner with to carry out and follow through to get to the impact of what I need so yes you could be a great screening triage program but okay, now let me partner with a person who can then treat them or manage or, you know, things like that. So it's really recognizing your core strengths, calling out your weaknesses and finding a partner that can uh, carry the baton. Excellent. Um, I could go on and on, but I know we have some uh, questions from our audience members. So uh, I want to bring Ladarian in to walk us through those. 
Thanks, Ron. And thanks to the speakers as well for sharing perspectives here. So I think we've talked a lot about, you know, a lot of the issues that we're seeing currently and, and what we might do going forward, but would love you all's perspective on what you feel most optimistic about as we continue forward um, and what areas might you have a little concern around and how we can collectively mobilize. So if we can do Dr. Nanai first and then Dora and then Dr. Um, Bosai last. Yeah, I, I definitely feel optimistic about the healthcare workforce. I think um, there are many people in the field now are feeling more confident in their voice and um, really ready to take or challenge um, systems. I think, you know, in the wake of George Floyd and understanding that, you know, we are officially saying, calling a spade a spade and we're recognizing that there are social injustices and systemic racism in public health. Now we're beyond just the words and terminology. People are like, how do we fix this? And I'm not running away from the profession. I'm now leaning in to figure out ways that we can fix this. And so that's exciting to me. I, I'm very hopeful about that. I'm also hopeful because um, we're moved away from this idea of specialty care being so, you know, I think it, it further alienates the ability to provide healthcare to everyone equitably. And now we're seeing ways that we can have more holistic healthcare services. And it's accepted on both sides, both in the medical community as well in, in population. So we're not kind of talking against each other. And I think it goes back to what Doris was saying. In the, you know, if, if you're on the ground, you're gonna know how to relate to the individual more than anybody can. Um, about what is the need. And if, for example, with the vaccines, you know, vaccine hesitancy, we stopped using the word hesitancy, we said vaccine doubt, because it's actually you, like anybody, you're going to doubt and find something suspect until somehow someone has provided the evidence to reassure you. And so the, the connotation that hesitancy is something about you when we all know that a, anything you want to do to me, right, you need to convince me that is worthy of being done. And so the conversation towards where the empowerment lies, all of that is exciting. And I think it's, you know, we're going to have a different type of health in the future. I love that. I love that. What about you, Dora? What are you feeling optimistic well, about? <laughs> Well, I'm just going to say that was that was beautiful and inspirational, and I'm going to have to follow on those words. Um, yeah, I think that in fact the conversation around racial racial justice has really had deep implications for us working in health and community health and health systems. And my greatest optimism is the leadership of women of color in the U.S. as well as globally. I think that that conversation that we're having here in the U.S. is also um, bringing a completely new perspective to our work in the global in the global uh, world in the global south and north and that if as we really examine the 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 racist and very gendered gender biased um, underpinnings of a lot of of foreign aid systems that that you know having that conversation out and open and calling it what it is um it is is the path to, to um, much more fundamental change um, that's really going to put um, nurses and midwives from the countries where they work in, in leadership. And that gives me great, great optimism. And Dr. Bosai, what about you? 
No, I would, I would, I would echo what my colleagues have, have said. I think what I'm really excited about is, I guess, number one, the recognition that there is a problem. That's the first step, right? <laughs> and calling that out. But I also think that I'm inspired by the growing number of women in leadership. There's always been a, a lot of women in the public health sector. I mean, I don't know, Dr. Nene, when she went through public health school, almost all of them were women, right? And so at least from our, our class, but I'm so thrilled and excited to see women lead in the public health sector. I think that um, the lens that we can bring is a collaborative one. I've seen leaders within the universities and our organization really think through holistically what might be needed. Um, and so to me, that's inspiring. I'm also inspired by all of these communities that really recognize the strength of women in leadership and especially in healthcare. Um, and so that to me is pretty awesome. And our commitment as leaders to hire a diverse workforce. So I think that that is top of mind for a lot of other women leaders that I've, I've come to know. Thank you for that. I think, you know, across all three of you, it just seems like equity is so important, right? Um, in every aspect of this work. So I have a couple questions from audience members that I think I'm gonna direct towards a, a, just one speaker just to be mindful of time. Um, so Dora, a question for you, and this kind of just highlights some things that you mentioned earlier, but one of the audience members was interested in knowing how equity and resource access is being prioritized to ensure that developing countries are being trained on the different technologies coming out and how they can create spaces for it within their communities. Can you speak a little bit to that? Or I think, I mean, it's a really challenging issue, um, but I let me, let me be, you know, very clear that it is not just about vaccine supply. There's a lot of talk in the media and it is certainly an issue and it certainly has an impact, um, the, the global equity and supply of vaccine doses. But the other piece, at least half, is in fact exactly all of that attention on um, equitable access to technology and technology skills being sure that vaccine tracking and logistics management software are built with a user and end user focus instead of what's most convenient to design from the capital city, um, making sure that the basic health systems that that um, you know the vaccinators hired to go out uh, you know to travel to far remote places to be able to get access there have somebody to take care of their kids while they go on you know very remote vaccination outreach. Um, so yeah, I think that. Um, it, 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 is, it is critical and to the extent possible, it has to be designed, our, our vaccine rollout has to be designed for equity to be successful. Um, and those are a couple of examples of how it's working. It's still, I would probably say the greatest challenge we face. Thanks for that door. And I think, you know, another challenge we're facing now is just the gaps that are being seen, um, especially with the mutations, right? Or the variants that are coming out from the pandemic. So this is a question I'm gonna to direct towards um, maybe Dr. Nene and Dr. Bosa, if you wanna chime in as well. Another question that came in was, what type of investments 
um, both intellectually intellectually or monetarily are you seeing in preventative health surveillance and this is just really around kind of keeping an eye and monitoring how pathogens are changing maybe that so we can see into the future and maybe um, prepare for some of those changes in advance so would love Dr. Nene to jump in here and then Dr. Bosai. Yeah, I mean, I, one thing I do want to say is um, I read this article just a month ago, and the amount of innovation that's happening on the continent from um, scientists and researchers of color on the continent is incredible. And I think that um, funding for those research, I mean, that right there is like what we talk about, you know, coming in and dropping off the innovation versus really supporting the innovation that's spewing and blowing up right there. In addition to the women who are the head of those innovators um, is a big deal. Um, so I wanted to do make that point, but I think, um, actually I lost my train of thought because I got so excited about that. I was like, hey, <laughs> innovation there is great. Um, but I think that I think that's the, it goes back to the whole collaboration effort, right? So the focus is still on making sure that we don't think that we have the solution, but that we're really too dialed in into the communities that are looking for the services and see how we can support them. That totally makes sense. And I think a theme too, and Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like on every Tuesday talk conversation we have, the power of community and partnership always comes mm -hmm. through in every topic. So I love to hear speakers constantly um, remind us of that. Um, Dr. Rosai, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think going forward, we've learned a lot throughout this year about what's important. And I think obviously making sure that we um, deliver and implement tools that address all of the other factors and getting healthcare <laughs> difficult and getting immunized, like in this instance, um, have come to light. You know, there are programs that are recognizing women are busy during the day. They're the primary caretaker. They're taking care of multiple children. They're working from home. How are they gonna even stop to take two hours of their day to go get vaccinated or go get tested for COVID? And like, there are all these other things, right? That come into play into like why someone doesn't present for unquote, care or getting immunized in this case. And so I'm excited to see some of the pairs in the hospitals recognizing we have to have expanded hours. We've got to improve. Um, sorry, <laughs> someone's trying to FaceTime me. Um, we've got to improve like access and distribution models that make sense for these caregivers, caretakers, women who are busy working, things like that. And so I'm excited to see the second wave of, um, you know, our COVID efforts, um, because there's a lot that we've learned from the first time around. Thank you for that, Dr. Bosayan. Um, Before we leave, I'm gonna pass it back over to Ryan for one last question for you all. Perfect. Um, those are excellent, excellent questions. Thank you all for the insights around uh, each of those. And thanks to the audience for submitting those. Um, so we're unfortunately nearing the end of our time. We're learning so much. Um, and we'd like to end uh, by asking each of our speakers to tell us one thing that you're doing these days to create joy or something in your life that's bringing you joy. Um, so let's hear from uh, Dr. Nane, Dr. Bosai, and we'll get our last word today from Dora. I'm sorry, you got cut off on the last sentence there. One thing in your life that you're doing to create joy these days or something that's bringing you joy? 
Um, I have to say, you know, the work at Shared Harvest is what feeds joy. I, I just like the health professionals on the group felt like I was feeling very helpless and overworked um, before we launched the MicroMD initiative. And I always tell people it saved my life because it really grounded me into my why. And meeting everyday people, <laughs> hilarious people, um, and understanding how, it, how complex health is for people um, outside of the hospital gates is, is, is a value. And I say to everyone, the difference between um, working very hard and being burnt out is passion and focus. Um, you, some, I feel like I work more in the hours now than I ever did uh, just working in the music department, but I have so much energy when I get up because I know the work that I'm doing is really making a difference. Wonderful. Um, I, so I would, I would echo that. I think that it's been such an honor to be able to work on uh, our tools. I've co-founded Pluto uh, with the idea that we can prevent fi actually financial toxicity from repeat labs and images and things like that, help improve healthcare by making sure that everyone is on the same page about what is going on with this patient and getting that together. And so that's been a treat. And most recently, we, um, unfortunately, one of our uh, colleagues, a family um, was diagnosed with metastatic cancer, but it was just so nice to be able to be a resource to bring all that data together to, so that that headache is relieved. And so to me, that helps me and our my team wake up every day and figure out how we're gonna solve this problem. And it's just been, such an honor uh, to work on. So I would say that that recently has been uh, top of mind. I guess I would say something a little more sort of every day. Um, I love to connect. I have two kids, an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old, and I love to connect them to the work I do. So telling them what it's like where I go and, you know, why people might have doubts, legitimate doubts about vaccines and how could we answer those questions and getting them excited about when they're big enough to get vaccinated um, is just, it's, puts a smile on my face. I love it. That's a perfect note for us to end on today. So I will ask our audience members, if you're willing, if you're able, turn your camera on, turn your microphone on, join me in giving a round of appreciation applause to our wonderful speakers today. Thank you all for being with us. Thank you so much. Really informative. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent and informative discussion Kenny. today. With that said, uh, over to you, DJ Sofa. You outdid yourself to open up. So the bar is really, really high uh, at this point. Thank you all for being with us.